All right, so we have been just started a series in 1 Corinthians 15. We're talking about resurrection and the fact that the Apostle Paul is reminding us that we won't stay like this forever, that there's a time where God will give us brand new bodies that will be glorified just like Jesus' body was when he returned. And that can be really good news for some of us, right? The fact that we don't have to stay in brokenness, we don't have to stay in sickness, that one day God is going to give us something unbelievable that we can't even imagine right now in this moment. And that's a really cool thing, but there were a lot of people that were like, nah, that isn't going to happen. We're just going to be these spirits or this little spark, and it's going to go back into a big flame. And they were just making all sorts of stories up about what the afterlife would be. And some people even denied there was one. Some people said like, hey, no, we just disappear like unplugging an appliance or your computer. Everything it just stops. And Paul's like, no, <laughs> like, I'm going to write a whole chapter, and that's what 1 Corinthians 15 that we're studying is dedicated to, reminding us and making sure it is very clear to us that there is a glorified body that awaits us one day, if we trust in Jesus Christ. And so I brought with me today, I have this little, this little cross, and uh, it was a gift from someone, if you can even see it, it's really little, but it's made out of olive wood, and it came from Israel. And the deal with this cross is that it was blessed. And so this person was really excited a while back, years ago. Um, they were really excited to give me this thing. And they were like, listen, it was blessed. And when I bought it, it was like $10.99. Like it was such a good deal for this thing. And the blessing promises that you will get financial wealth if you have this cross. And so I want to give it to you. And like for a minute, I was like, what? But I could see on their face that they were so serious and so excited to give it to me. Like, I didn't want to respond in like, <laughs> you know, just like laugh in their face. But inside, I'm like, there's no way. There's no way this little thing just made of wood is all of a sudden going to do some miraculous thing in my life and make me rich and I'm driving a Ferrari tomorrow. But they really believed that that was the case and that was what was going to happen. And so, as you can tell, this is years later. Still no Ferrari, right? I'm still not rich. It was just a gimmick to sell some wood to a tourist. But it claimed that, like, it could basically prophesy and tell you what would happen in my life. Like, this cross will do this thing. And unfortunately, life is full of little things like this. The world is full of little things like this. It promises us all sorts of things are going to happen. And we hear it so much that when we hear a claim, like we hear in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul's like, this is going to happen. And we read things in scripture that promise what's going to happen, what we call prophecy, that's foretelling what will happen. We go, mm, are you sure? Is that just some religious thing people say? How can you be sure that that is actually true? And so Paul lays out for us, last week we saw, okay, these reasons why we can actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that it's true, and that you and I one day will rise up and get new bodies as well because Jesus did it, and if you trust in him, you'll follow Jesus in his resurrection. And so he gave us some evidence. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is. He's proving it for us. And so last week for the first couple verses, we looked at where the greatest evidence. When you stopped and you said, Jesus, I trust you. I believe in you. Can you have my life? He changed you. 
He's still working in you today if you've done that. Even if you are running from him, he's chasing you. Even if you're messing up, he's pulling you back on track. The Holy Spirit is constantly at work in you. And you're changing and you're growing to look more like Jesus. And that is the greatest evidence that this is true. That Jesus really rose from the dead because he's already resurrecting your dead spirit and your dead soul to look like him. He's already forming this thing called the church that's me and you that looks completely different from the dead world around us. There's already resurrection and transformation happening. You walk into a church and you hear stories of how people's lives are changing. And I could take you by the hand and walk you over to so many people in our church that walked into this place one day and they were just broken. They met Jesus. Things are so different. God is at work in their hearts. There's joy coming out of them. There's peace in their heart. They might not have all their problems like in life fixed, but they're a different person. That's the work of God in them. And so the first greatest evidence he pointed at was us, those of us who believe in Jesus. And second, tonight we're going to look at, at this thing called, oh, I'm throwing it, this thing called prophecies. We're going to look and say, can we actually trust the prophecies about Jesus that said what he was going to do and they actually came true? Does that put this like awesome stamp of like authenticity on what Paul's saying? It absolutely does. Because who can look into the future for hundreds and hundreds of years and say, this is exactly what's going to happen with perfect detail. And then boom, all of a sudden it happens exactly when and exactly how it was supposed to happen. That's just God showing off his sovereignty, his control in things. And so we can look at that and go, there's God. God showed up again. God's trustworthy. And so read with me real quick. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 tonight. It says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul starts off with that and he says, for I delivered to you. So this is Paul going to these people directly, right? The Corinthians, he's talking to these people. A lot of them, remember, believed in that big all spark thing. And oh, that's like Transformers, isn't it? Whatever, that, that spark that goes back to, like, to the flame. They were just insane about afterlife. They had their thoughts all crossed. And so what he's saying is, remember... Remember, I came to you. Remember, I delivered this message of hope about Jesus and what he did and who he is and how he can change your life. I'm the one who personally delivered this message to you that some of you guys believed. As he talks to the church, he's saying that y'all believed. I delivered it to you, and he says, as of first importance. So it wasn't just a message. He's like, hey, this is kind of cool. You should check it out. He was like, the most important thing I can tell you is that Jesus died for you. And he rose again from the dead. He's alive today. And if you trust in him, you can be forgiven and have eternal life. That's the most important thing I could tell you. And you're like, tonight, you're like, well, you know, like, I don't know lots of theology. I don't know the Bible too well. I don't know all these things that everybody around me in church is talking about and debating and all this stuff. Like, you don't necessarily need to. It's not bad to study the Bible. I'm not saying that. But the thing that is absolutely the most important thing in your life is knowing Jesus Christ. It's having a relationship with Jesus. Paul says it is of first importance. 
There's nothing more important than that. It all starts with having a relationship with Christ, with believing he really died. He really rose from the dead, and he really wants to save you if you trust in him. That's of first importance. And he says, what I also received. I love that he says that part because a lot of times we're used to like this Christianity where people get on stages and preach at you and then go do something different. And if you were to watch the lives of the people that are trying to tell you to act or behave a certain way, we'd see a completely different behavior. And what Paul's saying is, I'm not just telling you this. I received it myself. That word received isn't just like, I heard it. It's I took it into my heart. It changed my life. He's like, I'm the greatest testament of this. Do you know who I used to be killing Christians, chasing them down, having them persecuted for saying the the word Jesus? And now here I am begging you to believe in Jesus, planting churches all over Asia. He's like, I received it and it changed my life. This thing is powerful. So let me ask you tonight as you sit here. Have you received it? Have you truly received the fact that Jesus Christ died for you, rose again, and loves you? It's the most important thing you will do with your life. It determines your eternity. Forget the next 60, 70 years. Your forever is based on that question. What have you done with Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Paul says, I received it. And here's what he wants to tell us in these two verses tonight. Here is the meat of it, the message that he wants so desperately for them to remember. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He could have just said that Jesus died for us. But he added that phrase, in accordance to the scriptures, because he's not just like throwing stuff out there, like these like cool ideas we should just blindly like receive. He's saying, you can look it up. (laughs) You have the scriptures. Check it out for yourself. I'm not making this up. Go back to these scrolls that were written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And they're going to match up with what we see today right here in front of our eyes. And you know what? We can still do that. You and I right now, 2,000-something years later, we can do that. We're going to tonight. So I'm going to read a lot of verses. I hope you want to hear the Bible tonight. If you don't, this is the time to tune out. I hope you don't. But we're going to dig into some scripture tonight. Uh, Psalm 22, we're going to compare that with Matthew 27. We've got the Psalms, right? Written in Old Testament a long time ago, way before Jesus. And then Matthew 27, written right after Jesus. Like in his time. And we're going to see the unbelievable overlap and similarities between these two books, what was promised and what actually took place. All right. So Matthew 20, uh, Psalm 22 says this. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hmm. If you have heard the passion story at all or seen any of the movies, you remember Jesus on the cross screaming this. He yells out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? But wait a second. This is Psalms. Jesus hadn't even been born yet. This is centuries before Jesus. And it is the first verse of Psalm 22. What's happening? 
my theory is this. Not only is this prophecy that this would happen, that God would literally look at his son and say, you are becoming sin so that all of us can become righteousness. And in so doing, forsaking his son so we can be righteous. But more than that, Jesus is literally looking out at all these good Jews, right, that are around him that have pretty much memorized the Psalms. And he's yelling out this first very, very noticeable verse that everyone in attendance would have immediately known so that their minds would begin to think through Psalm 22 because he was about to fulfill all sorts of prophecies from this psalm. And so their minds are already thinking through the psalm as they're literally standing there looking up at the cross, seeing Jesus and watching these prophecies that they remember in Psalms 22 coming true right in front of them. How unbelievable. So many of us heard that Jesus yells this on the cross and we're like really confused by it. Like, why would God forsake Jesus? But we missed the whole point that this is Psalm 22 and a prophecy that they want us to see so that we know that God fulfills his word. And so let's jump down to verse six. It says this, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All you have to do is read the gospels to know that as Jesus carried that cross, he was spat on. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was cursed, he was mocked. They screamed all sorts of horrible, vile things at him. Literally, verse 6 is coming true in the gospel story. It says in verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And here's what they say in verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That draw to mind anything that might have happened as Jesus hung on that cross. The criminal that was right next to him looks at him and says, hey, if you're actually the son of God, why don't you get yourself and us off this thing? Well, I guess David knew centuries before that that exact conversation was going to happen on the cross. Unbelievable. Prophecy fulfilled. Then in verse 10, it says, on you was I cast from my birth. From my mother's womb, you've been my God. I do think Jesus was born of a virgin. I do think that the power of God is what actually brought Jesus into this world. Jesus, 100% God and 100% man. How could David have known that? He wasn't there. It happened way after. Look at verse 12. It says, but many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And listen to this. He says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. I don't know if you remember the scene as Jesus was taken from the cross and they were ordered to make sure he was dead. They didn't even get a chance to break his legs, which was tradition to make sure if his legs were broken, he wouldn't be able to hold himself up. He couldn't hold himself up. He couldn't breathe, and he would die very quickly. So they would break those legs. But prophecy says he won't have any broken bones. And so he died before they had a chance. So you know what they did? They said, make sure he's dead. We have to be sure. We'll lose our lives if he gets away later. So they went up with him with a spear, and they shoved it through his chest into his heart. 
And out of that melted heart came water and blood. Exactly like it says here in Psalm 22. Okay, one, one like, thing might just be curious, like, oh, okay, that's a similarity. We're on, like, number seven already in one chapter. How could all of these things happen exactly like it says here? Then he says this in verse 15, my strength is dried up like a postard and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Exactly like Jesus said, hey, I'm thirsty. And the soldiers took a rag with sour wine vinegar and held it up to him for him to get a drink. Remember when Jesus was thirsty? Seems like an odd thing to remember and to predict. But yet, even that detail is right here. Reminding us that Jesus wasn't just this massive, unbelievable, infinite God, which he was. But at the same time, he was also a man who could be thirsty like you and me. A man who can relate to you. A man who could bear your sin. A man who could know your broken heart. He was thirsty, it says. And look at this next part. Verse 16, it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Predicts exactly how the Messiah will die. Nails through his hands and feet. I count all my bones. No bones are broken. They stare and gloat over me. And verse 18 says, they divide my garments among me. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And if we go back to Matthew, we see the soldiers at the foot of Jesus' cross where all of his belongings were laid. And it was their right to take it. And so because there were more than one of them, they had to decide who got what. And you know what they did? The gospels tell us that they took dice. It's lots is what they called them. And they would throw them. And they would gamble for the clothes of Jesus at the foot of his cross as he's dying gagging for breath he's looking down at these dudes who all they can think about is who gets his sandals and here it is Psalms centuries before telling us that that exact thing would happen imagine being that close to the cross imagine being at the foot And looking up and seeing the Savior of the world, being that close to love, and missing the entire thing. Because your nose is down here looking for the trash, looking for the things that aren't ever going to pay off. We love to settle for less than the best. Instead of looking up at God and being like, you have this incredible plan for me. Look at you, Jesus. We want to look down and go, second best looks really good right now. I'd rather take these sandals. I'd rather take this cloak because it'll do good right now. You know, it'll make me feel good now, even though I know it's not the best. Imagine being that close to Jesus and missing it. And here it is in Psalm 22, way before it ever happened, foretold. If we jump down 
There's a whole bunch, and I don't have time to go through this entire thing, but let's jump to verse 29. It says, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him, they shall bow in all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Listen to this in verse 33. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. We made it. (laughs) Like we made it in the Bible, y'all. That's us. The people yet unborn that are hearing the gospel right now, this message, that's us. That thousands of years later, people would still be hearing about this unbelievable thing that this Messiah did. But remember, this isn't during the time of Jesus. This is way before Jesus that that was foretold. And here we are way after that. And guess what? It's still happening. Tonight, I'm up here telling you. I'm declaring this to you. It's happening right now as we speak. Prophecy right this moment is being fulfilled. Because those of us who were not born in that time will still hear this unbelievable truth of what Jesus did. And here we are doing it. We could go on and on and just keep tearing into the Psalms and finding these prophecies. But I want to show you another place because it's not just in the Psalms. It's also in Isaiah 53 is another place we can look. So I'm jumping to Isaiah 53, verse 2, if you're following with me and making sure I'm not lying to you about these verses, all right? For, uh, it says this in verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah was written, again, a long time before Jesus but it talked a lot about this Messiah that would come. And the way he describes it here is basically just like someone who might have been, I don't know, a carpenter's son. Somebody with no power or influence. Somebody that no one would look at and be like, oh, let me fall on my knees before you necessarily. And that's exactly how Jesus came. Then he says, in verse three, he was despised and rejected by men. Calls him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And is one from whom men hide their faces. It's like he took it exactly out of the gospels. But they weren't written yet. Verse 4 says, Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You have almost a perfect description of what happened to Jesus the day he was put to death. How could they have known? outside of the Holy Spirit giving them these words to prophesy, how could they ever have known? And it's not just one place, and it's not just one verse. The Bible, the Old Testament, is absolutely full of these prophecies that came true. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 is telling us, the scriptures foretold this, go look at them. How many of you guys have actually, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have actually done that? 
You dig into the scripture because you want to know, you want to be able to say, does the Bible actually say this? Did this actually happen? And Paul's encouraging us to do it. You have it right in front of you. Open up the scriptures and look, we're seeing it tonight. This is proof for us. Just another proof that Jesus really rose from the dead. And so he says this, look, I'm going to go on a little bit more. He says in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. And the Gospels tell us Jesus never responded. You know what I would do if these soldiers were beating me and kicking me and throwing a cross on my back and all these other things? There would probably be a few flowery words coming out of my mouth that I probably shouldn't say. I'd be talking about people's mamas. I'd be talking about all, you know what I'm saying? Like you would too. That's not like a pleasant thing to go through. And you know what Jesus did? Absolutely nothing. Just that. Imagine the power it would take to be beaten and tortured and crucified and not say one slanderous word to people, not yell one cuss word. Come on. And here, hundreds of years earlier, it was prophesied that he wouldn't. And we have recordings saying that he never did. That's unbelievable. And then verse 8 says this. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. (laughs) Okay, like Pilate that was saying, hey, I washed my hands of this. He's not guilty. I find no guilt in him, but okay, take him away. That is the very description of oppression, right? Like this unjust thing that happened to him, he didn't deserve. And here it is prophesied. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 9 says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. Guess where Jesus was buried? In the tomb of a rich man. You know why? Because they had to get his body off the streets. Because it was feast time. And by law, they couldn't. They had to have the dead buried or they couldn't. So they said, hey, can we borrow a tomb? And this rich family said, yeah, we have one right here, literally just down from the cross. Bring him over. And they borrowed this rich man's tomb. Seems like a really weird detail to be like, let's fake this one, guys. Right? Centuries before, it was already recorded that that would happen. Love it. Verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You know that Jesus, I remember him being in the garden and saying, hey, God, if this can pass from me, this cup can pass from me, and I don't have to do this, that's awesome. And then he says what? He says, but not my will, but yours. And it was the will of the Lord to turn Jesus into the very thing that we had to pay for so that we could be righteousness. And then in verse, down, down a little bit further, let's jump down to verse 12. It says this at the end. It says, and was numbered with the transgressors. This perfect lamb was counted as a sinner. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. His very death is what cleaned us up from our sin, a death he did not deserve. How unbelievable. 
centuries before that was already prophesied. We think of it as being like the story of the Gospels. Like, yeah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke really hit it home. Like, that's it. But actually, the Old Testament was already talking about it for hundreds of years before, saying, this is what will happen. We just have to read our Bibles to see the connections that these prophecies really became fulfilled. Even in Genesis, go all the way back, right? We're going all the way to Genesis. Go to Genesis 22, and it basically describes for us this story of Abraham who's told to go take his only son up into this mountain and sacrifice him. And there's Abraham, and he's standing over his son who's on an altar, and he pulls out this knife, and he's about to kill his only son. And what happens? This angel shows up from the Lord and grabs his hand and says, stop. I know now that you fear God, he says. You're not holding back your one and only son from me. I see that. And then he looks over to the side. He's like, God's provided a ram. And there's this ram with its horn stuck in like a bush right there that he's able to sacrifice instead. And you know what this is? Is just another prophecy right from the beginning in Genesis saying that God is going to pay for your sin with his only son. And instead of you having to give your only son or your very life, God's going to give his only son's life. And that's exactly what happened. I can give you like a hundred more verses and some of you are like, please don't. And that's fine. But if you want them, I'll be around. I'll give them to you or send them to you or make them available because all these connections are unbelievable just to read through in your own time and see that when Paul says it's according to the scriptures, we can see it really is according to the scriptures. These are prophecies that have been fulfilled. And so look at verse four. We're back in 1 Corinthians and uh, verse four says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. And again, he says in accordance with the scriptures. So what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to go back and show you that it really is in accordance to the scriptures that Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Because if he didn't rise from the dead, we won't either. If this whole Jesus thing is just a story and it's fake, then you and I are not going to rise again. And you and I are not going to get glorified bodies like his was when he came back. We're not, it won't happen. He's the only way there. And so Paul's telling us, hey, it's in the scripture. So I want to read you just a couple different ones to prove that. Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11 says this. Again, Psalms is really old, right? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There's fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. Talking about a coming Messiah, he says this. You will not abandon his soul to Sheol. Jesus resurrected from the dead. He didn't just stay dead. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 and on. It says this. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Again, we're told Jesus rose from the dead. The Messiah will not stay dead. He is God and you can't keep God in the grave. I want to show you just one more. This one's from Jonah, 
right? We don't travel over to the book of Jonah very often, but verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 17 says this, and the Lord anointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We're already looking forward in the book of Jonah to when Jesus would come and save us from sin, the belly of that fish, to bring rescue. And three days and three nights is already being forecast for us that this is what will happen. And we know when we look at the Gospels that Jesus, for three days and three nights, was paying for sin. And then three days later, guess what happened? He rose from the dead. And there are about 20 other places that I have references for right here I can show you where it says the exact same thing over and over in Hosea and Mark and all these different books that for three days and three nights this would happen as a way to prophesy to us that Jesus really did rise. He didn't just die and stay dead to pay some penalty. He rose. That's literally the most powerful part of our faith is the fact that he's alive today. And everyone out there, including a lot of churches, want to attack that very thing. Well, yeah, I mean, like the whole Jesus raising again is kind of debatable because guys don't rise from the dead. And if you agree with that, you just took your entire faith and threw it to the ground. Because our faith is based on the fact that Jesus didn't just die. He rose again and he's alive today and he will save you if you place your trust in him. You see, the gospel, this thing that Paul is talking about of most importance, that Jesus looked at you and said, I love you so much. I will pay for your sin. And Jesus took the form of man. He was born to a virgin and grew up and living perfect, died on a cross. Counted as a sinner and a transgressor, he was beaten and murdered and willingly did it for us. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, the power of God made it possible for you and I to trust it, to believe it, and to be forgiven of our sin. And listen, if you've never heard that before, and maybe this is your first time tonight, Before you leave, I'd love to talk to you about it. I'd love for you to leave this place knowing how much Jesus loves you and what he's done to make your sins forgiven so that one day when you get to heaven, when you die from this earth, you can stand before God and say, I actually know you. I've been forgiven by your son. And God says, come on in. So tonight, as the band comes back up to lead us in worship, I just want to ask you guys to think about one thing over this next song. And Paul says, how important this thing is. Have I truly made it important in my own heart? Am I living like the gospel is important? Or do I think it's just some old story? Or maybe tonight you need to just stop and say, Jesus, I've never actually trusted in you for salvation. But would you just spend a couple moments as we sing this song and just ask God, like, what is it you're calling me to do tonight?